If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this November 5th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. In hour number two, we are generally joined by a special guest, and we're very happy that uh, this week is no exception. Our, our guest is someone who originally agreed to be on the program last week, but then uh, thankfully was able to reschedule when we had a, a problem with our producer getting sick at the very last moment, so we really appreciate that. Her name is Mona Charon. She is an author, columnist, commentator, and a speechwriter from way back in the Reagan days, and boy, things have changed a lot since then, and we're really <laughs> excited to speak to her now. Mona, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. I love your podcast. Well, Because uh, you, you care about truth. <laughs> and uh, that's not this is not a common thing in 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 this day and age. So I appreciate that. Oh, well, I appreciate that more than you realize. When did that happen? By the way, do we have a date on when that occurred? Because I missed the memo. <laughs> yeah, the day when we were all instructed that the truth didn't matter, that integrity is optional, um, and uh, and so on and so forth. That vulgarity was just fine. I, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think I missed the memo too. Okay, well, there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to speak to you. Uh, originally, I wanted to speak to you about a column that I really appreciated that you wrote about uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and the whole sexual um, uh, supposed assault allegations against him. I will get to that uh, shortly because I thought you, you really nailed it and were one of the few voices of reasons, reason on that. But one of the other reasons why I wanted to talk to you, and it happened to be newsworthy this week, is that we are part, I guess, of the same no longer secret group uh, of, uh, I guess you would call us anti-Trump conservatives uh, that mm-hmm. that outed ourselves this week with a letter uh, that was made uh, public in the Washington Post regarding this effort to try to protect special counsel Robert Mueller from being fired uh, by Donald Trump and that uh, Republicans in Congress ought to stand up uh, should he attempt to do that. Uh, before we get to the letter itself, why don't you tell people about your uh, participation in this group, uh, I guess is officially called the Concerned Conservatives. Uh, g- give us a sense uh, of your participation in this and how you view this group. Um, 
Well, first of all, I'd have to I'd have to quibble with one part of your description and okay. only one, but that is that it's really not a group of conservatives. It's a group of some conservatives. Um, Bill Crystal participates. I participate. Um, uh, you do, um, but um, but there are um, there are lots of libertarians. Um, there are some liberals, uh, some Democrats. And um, and I would say a, quite a number of people who fall into the category of sort of rank and file Republicans who are just repelled by the direction of the party. So I think it covers those bases. And um, we've had speakers who are Democrats and and have worked for you know Obama and and um, and so forth. So you know there's there's quite a lot of um, variety in the ideological spectrum that you can find. In our meetings, what unites us, I would say, is um, a, a fealty to certain standards and values, and and uh, the Constitution, and and a, a certain alarm and dismay about uh, the Trumpification of the GOP. So fair enough. I, that's and how I, I would put it. That's fair enough. I mean, it's been described this week. I think the headline in the in the Washington Post were used the word conservatives, but uh, I think that's because right. The, but, I, I, it, it's actually called the MOC, the Meeting of the Concerned, right? Right, which which doesn't limit it to conservatives. But anyway, fair enough. But how do you see small quibble? No, that's okay. That's that's an important point. So I mean, I participate via phone and, and Skype, so I don't really. It's hard for me to to tell who who the heck is in these meetings, and I, I, yeah. I and I'm not really able to participate the way that you are because you're part of the DC elite. So you, 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 <laughs> exactly swamp <laughs> so, dweller, right? So so you're a swamp dweller. You're able to actually be there in person. So so how, yeah. what what do you view the purpose of this group to be? Psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually described it at, uh, in one of the meetings in one of my few participations. I said this feels like a therapy meeting. Uh, so I'm glad to hear you agree with that. So you, so- yes. uh, for a long time, it felt that way because uh, you know people would just spend the first 25 minutes of every meeting or so rehearsing that week's. Well, two, we meet every other week, so that fortnight's uh, horror parade of horrors, um, and uh, exchange, you know, exasperated and uh, and horrified uh, 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 facial expressions about all of this. Um, and it was, but but I'm making light of it as you did. But but the fact is that um, for some of us, it really did feel like our sanity was sometimes in question when it seems like the whole world is tilted on its axis a little bit. And so it was actually therapeutic to be among people who um, saw the world the same way and felt that this is, this is nuts what's happening. And, um, you know, we now, just, just for speaking only for myself now and not for anyone else, but I would have to say um, that just for the most recent examples, the fact that the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, has now uh, become apparently with everybody's um, or with without too much quibble from too many people has become the party of defending confederate statues and speaking up for robert e lee and so forth as our heritage um you know that causes me to sort of rub my eyes with my fists and say you know that's that's not the republican party um that i joined and um and wouldn't have joined Mona, I've I've been baffled by a lot of things uh, over the last couple of years. 
not as baffled as some people, but but still, t- to a large extent, very puzzled by how this whole Trump coup occurred. And I guess the thing that has most surprised me, or, or did surprise me, was the lack of pushback when this coup went down. And, you know, I, I'm, I went to school at Georgetown, but it's been a long time since I lived in the, in the D.C. bubble. Uh, you, you know, you're there. You, you've lived there a very long time. Were you surprised that the coup was as easy as it, as it turned out to be and that there really wasn't even a final moment of, okay, this is the last battle. We're going to die. We're going we're gonna to go down swinging. This is the hill we're going to die on. That never happened. Did that surprise you, right. too? Right, right. I think the last, it, yes, it did. And the, the last moment of hope um, for some sort of um, uh, some sort of blocking action was probably the Wisconsin primary. Mm-hmm. Um, and there you had um, the, the talk radio culture in Wisconsin is very different from right. the national one. And he had led by Charlie Sykes. Right. Um, you had all of these very smart and um, and principal conservative radio talk show hosts who were anti-Trump, unlike the national voices. And um, and it looked like maybe there was finally going to be some uh, attempt by Republicans to rally around Cruz to prevent um, Trump from getting the nomination. And uh, while they did succeed in Wisconsin, it turned out, as Charlie says, just be a speed bump. And um, and he, he proceeded on. Now, look, I You've you've covered a lot of this ground, and I and I tend to agree with your analysis of it, which is that um, the parties in general, of course, have been losing power um, with modern technology and modern ways of communicating with voters, um, making parties less and less relevant. And um, the Republican Party elders, you know, the, it's funny that the Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity's and Laura Ingram's of the world go on and on about the Republican elites, when in point of fact, the people who are the real power brokers in Republican politics are the talk radio hosts. They are the power brokers. That's what people cared about. During the primaries, it was really noticeable how um, eager all of the candidates were to be mentioned positively by Rush Limbaugh, for example. Uh, you know, to get a pat on the back from Rush Limbaugh was something that uh, that all the candidates wanted, except with the possible exception of John Kasich, who was going for a different <laughs> demographic. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> but you know that has been the drift is that the um, is that the media spokespeople have become uh, the the power brokers and and. So it's it's talk radio, it's the Breitbart's and and Fox News, the sort of conservative infotainment uh, world has uh, has the power, and the the parties have very little now. Reince Priebus was a doofus uh, who who just at every point where he could have used whatever waning uh, institutional authority he had in, as as uh, head of the Republican Party to thwart Trump, he instead chose to enable him. And to the point where even at the Republican convention, when there was a move to have a floor fight, he shut that down with really kind of, you know, hardball, very hardball tactics. And um, so, you know, the, the, the party itself proved to, proved to be um, as worthy of contempt as its harshest critics were saying, just for different reasons. Its harshest critics were saying it was, it was worthy of contempt because... It was part of the establishment, but what it really revealed was that it could easily become the tool 
of the infotainment wing. That was why it was contemptible. Very well said, Mona. And I find it interesting that you mentioned uh, Priebus, who was the RNC chair during this entire uh, process, who I, I believe completely sold out to Trump. And the proof is in the fact that he ended up being hired briefly as his chief of staff once he went into the White House. And I find it particularly hilarious, and I wrote a column about this for Mediate yesterday, that there's all this talk uh, of uh, you know Hillary having rigged the Democratic primary process. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I, I, I did take exception to the word rig because that's not what the allegation is. It's more of a staging, mm-hmm. more of a staging than a rigging. But if any primary process was rigged, wasn't it the Republican side? <laughs> well, you know, the, um, the problem is they're always fighting by the rules of the last time. And that, of course, they felt uh, these brilliant people at the Republican National Committee that uh, based on the Romney experience where he um, ran out of money because he'd had a long <laughs> primary season and a lot of challengers up until the very end. So he was out of money for several months before the convention um, in, uh, in 2012. And therefore, uh, Obama got the jump on him and was able to run, you know, these very negative ads about Romney being causing cancer to, you know, little old ladies and various other things. Um, before Romney had a chance to respond. So they said, well, all right, so obviously what we need to do is shorten the primary season so that our nominee comes out relatively unscathed and with still with plenty of money in the bank and can therefore turn his sights on the Dem or her sights on the Democrats earlier on. Um, and so we'll make it more winner-take-all primaries. And, um, and, uh, that pr- and, and we'll, we'll front-load uh, the, the process well. Then they got a different problem, which is that you could win with 40 percent of the vote, right? Um, you know, in in primary after primary and winner takes all. Right. But that, so that, that wasn't who, that wasn't really rigging, though. That was more luck on Trump's part that he just happened to come at a time period where oh, the where the rules where the rules really benefited from him. He probably right, didn't, I agree. It's not rigging. It's right. Not rigging. But here's but what is, is rigging. But here's what is rigging in, in, yeah. in light of the conversation this week about the DNC and Donna Brazil trying to sell books. Uh, and I find it I find it hilarious, Mona, that all of a sudden Trump fans are, are, are taking the word of Donna Brazil as gospel. Oh, I know. She's gospel now. Right. Right. It's hilarious, isn't it? I mean, the, the, yeah. the, there, there's no hypocrisy has died, uh, you know, many deaths in this entire yes. two year process. But I digress. But but <laughs> it, but here's the thing that I, I find uh, amazing about this this whole issue is that here's a guy, Donald Trump, who got two to three billion dollars in free advertising during the primaries. His buddy was running the major conservative media outlet, Fox News Channel, Roger Ailes. And there's a and there's a very uh, credible allegation from Megyn Kelly that the first question at the first debate, which I to this day believe, Mona, is the most underrated moment of the entire campaign and why he might be president, which was the whole Rosie O'Donnell answer. There's a very mm. good allegation that he was tipped off to the question uh, in mm. in Megyn Kelly's book. And who and the most logical Oxum's razor explanation for that is Roger Ailes, who would have access to that kind of information, was the person that tipped him off. Now that's a rigging. That's that that's that is an actual situation where the people who were in charge, including Previs, who ends up again as his chief of staff. I mean, when when you hire the referee 
to to yeah. to be your chief of staff, that's a pretty good indication that the game wasn't played particularly fairly. And right. uh, and I'm just curious what your reaction to all that is. I, look, it's it's certainly plausible. Um, I think we need to get Megan Kelly's uh, acknowledgement that it happened before we can. Well, take it's it in to her. It's in it's in her book. I mean, it's in the does, book. I mean, does she say that Roger Ailes? Did no, that? that is my oh. that is my interpretation. If you just look at what she wrote. And, you know, thinking about this logically, who would have the, the motive and the opportunity and the ability to do that? It's a very small group of people. I mean, let I, me ask you this. Did she submit her questions to management before the debate? No, she other people. Here's what I think happened. This is pure speculation, but it's you know, I think it makes sense. So if if you're one of Megyn Kelly's researchers or assistants, right, and you mm-hmm. and you know, say, hey, Mr. Ailes, um, you know, this question is being planned on being asked is hardly a stretch when that no, when that person, as you know, the way that this business works, that person, you know, Ailes at that time is a king. So, you know, he hasn't been brought down by the sexual harassment allegations yet. Uh, You know, it certainly makes a lot of sense that someone has a huge incentive to brown nose Roger Ailes and and tip him off that this question is coming. And if you remember, and I know it sounds like I'm making a big deal out of, you know, mountain out of a molehill. It's not because that first moment at the first debate, I think, changed everything because Trump was still exceedingly vulnerable at that moment. And if you remember... He knocked that out of the park, and he did so in a way that, to me, was very consistent with he knew it was coming. And, and he, there was no panic. He knew exactly what he was doing. He saw the fastball coming down the plate. And he, when he said, only Rosie O'Donnell, it disarmed the question, and it showed millions of conservatives, I'm one of you. I, you know, we have the same enemies and I'm, Mm -hmm, I'm being mm -hmm. attacked by the left. And I think it, I think it changed everything. I mean, I, again, this sounds like a small deal, but it, it goes to this issue that the, I, you know, Trump is a master at projection. And whenever he makes a charge against somebody else, it's usually because he's done it himself at some point. And if you remember, he made a huge deal. He kept, I guarantee you there are Trump cult members who to this day think that Hillary Clinton was given questions to their debates because he's made the charge many times but never clarified what he was talking about. He was talking about Donner Brazil giving her a couple of questions at a town hall during the Democratic primaries, but he keeps saying yeah. the debates. And so his cult yeah. his cult members think, "Oh my gosh, Hillary, that's why Hillary kicked my ass because she was giving the the questions at the debate." Well, he's projecting. Yeah. He's projecting yeah. because he got the questions from the Fox, at least the Fox debates, the or the, the key one. Would find it interesting and important, but yeah. but uh, unfortunately, very few other people seem to. All right, now it so, seems. It seems. Let me just say this: um, it's hard to think of another time during the debate uh, when Trump said something that was funny. In other words, that was funny. Yeah, no, exactly. I hear what you. That's a good point because. <laughs> I kept waiting for Trump because, you know, I was somewhat open-minded to him at the beginning. I, I expected him to be funny 
and, and he mm -hmm. rare he rarely was uh, because he's not a very smart guy, and and right. and he doesn't come up with things off the cuff. But that was right. that was clearly not off the cuff. He knew yeah. he knew that was coming, and it, you know Oxum's razor makes it pretty clear as to how. All right, let's get back to the meeting of the concerned because this this came became a news story this week because our group released this letter. Uh, targeting, I guess, uh, you know, Republicans in Congress to try to get them to protect special counsel Robert Mueller. Uh, I, I quote unquote signed it. Uh, you quote unquote signed it. Uh, give us a sense of, of how you view the, the purpose of that letter. The um, there, there has been, you know, over the past several months, a noticeable um, decline of um, of opposition to Trump within Republican ranks. So you had the uh, Jeff Flake thing where he had to give up his Senate seat or the, the uh, he had to give up running for reelection uh, because he had written a book challenging Trump. He'd been a Trump critic and that made his popularity plunge in Arizona. And so he was going to be defeated. It looked like in the primary and therefore he dropped out. So that wasn't. And then Corker, um, announces he's not running for re-election and only then has the, the courage to, to say the truth about Trump. And um, uh, Charlie Dent and other moderate Republicans are saying they're not going to run again. And, and while all of that was happening, and, um, the, uh, the, the anti-Trump people in the Congress, uh, you know, having to kind of withdraw with their tails between their legs, um, you also had uh, the main media outlets like Fox, like um, the Wall Street Journal, which was really uh, the thing that tipped me over into wanting to sign this letter, because the Wall Street Journal is very respected, and rightly so, but um, they have gotten onto this bizarre uh, conspiracy theory themselves, where they believe that because Comey and, well, they do hate Comey, the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal just hates Comey. Um, but um, but they have this idea that because Comey is close to uh, Mueller or they or they were friendly or on good terms or something, that this compromises Mueller's integrity. And therefore, they recommended that the president fire Mueller and uh, issue pardons to um, to all and sundry, uh, or at least th this was suggested on their pages. Now, um, that, it seems to me, <laughs> is is to um, is to challenge the rule of law in our country and the search for facts. Uh, it may be that Mueller finds that there were no laws violated. Uh, by the way, there could have been massive collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians without a crime being committed, in which case uh, Mueller would say, have to say that, because it is not a crime to collude. Okay. There are other things, though, that are criminal, such as the things that Paul Manafort did, and there are potential criminal offenses. But um, to say, you know, that, that the Republican pose should be uh, when we have the most tainted uh, person ever in the Oval Office, uh, that the Republican position should be that we want to shut down all inquiries and we don't want to know the truth is... Um, it's just very, very damaging, and uh, it should not be the Republican position. It will lead to tears later. So better to know the truth now. Mona, do you believe that Trump will uh, manage to get or try to get Mueller fired? And if so, what would the reaction be from Republicans in Washington? 
So um, that, that depends in part on the timing. Um, uh, you know, I think it, it, it changes from week to week. Apparently this week the people in the White House are telling Trump that it would be a big mistake to fire Mueller. Trump is apparently telling people that he feels that Jared Kushner gave him bad advice when he suggested that he fire Comey, which, you know, welcome to the, yeah, that's <laughs> a little late with that insight, but there you go. Um, so he seems, if, he, if that's his current frame of mind, that, oh, that darn son-in-law told me to fire Comey, and now look at all the troubles that's caused, um, he may be a little resistant to calls to fire Mueller. But, you know, we don't, we don't know what he knows. We don't know what he has to hide. And so um, I think that's part of it. Another part of it will be how fast the Mueller investigation moves. I mean, if there are more indictments that come rapidly down the track, and, you know, those can change the public mood in an afternoon. And so that could also um, lean for or against firing him. As far as the response of the Republican Party, it's Trump's party now, John. They'll mm-hmm. get behind him. I agree. I, I agree. Yeah. I yeah. agree. I, I, I think that he could get away with doing this far more easily than some people currently believe. And, and part yeah. of it is not just that it's the Republic. It's you know, Trump's Republican Party now. Uh, you know, there's still some uh, bastions of opposition. You already mentioned Corker and Flake and they're, they're John McCain, and, and there's just a few others in the Senate. Um, but by and large, you're right. But to me, one of the, the if there is an area where Trump is a master and does understand uh, what's really going on, it's in manipulating the media and specifically manipulating the short attention span of the news mm-hmm. media. Because um, let's let's say he does fire Mueller or gets Mueller fired indirectly. Indirectly, I don't think he actually has the power to do it himself. But let's in, indirectly he forces uh, Mueller's firing. Oh, that that will be a massive news story for a day and a half, and right. that and that's assuming nothing else salacious happens elsewhere in the yep. world. And, and so in a day and a half, but what happens after a day and a half in this now short attention span media world in which we live? What keeps that story going? Very little. I mean, uh, now there'll, there'll be, you know, there will be some repercussions and there'll be some uh, elements of the story to keep, uh, you know, the, 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 the fire burning, but it, it will burn out fairly fast. And Trump knows this. And so what happens then after that's after the story burns out? What's the repercussion? What is it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, the uh, I guess you could say that we are living with the eight, the first ADHD presidency. Right. Um, and and it couldn't succeed if we didn't, as you say, also have an ADHD press where it's it, I've never seen in my life in journalism such um, a you know, chasing after the shiny objects as we have now. It's, uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it, everybody has a Twitter attention span. And, um, and so it's never become, it's never been easier to use the, the tactic of distraction because people are so easily distracted. And honestly, it is so much better, more fun for so-called journalists to, um, you know, chase after every Trump tweet and, oh, what did he say now? And all of that, rather than actually do serious reporting on policy or on many right. other topics, right? 
Um, that's work. Who wants to do that? So, um, so you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a symbiotic thing. Trump loves to distract and the media loves to be distracted. So that's a really, really bad combination for our mm. civic health. All right. So, <laughs> I mean, I know there are a lot of people, uh, you know, good thinking people who think that if he fires Mueller, this is it. This is the constitutional crisis. This is Armageddon. But uh, I, I, we've thought that before. And, you know, we thought that when he fired Comey. And, you know, while they're. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm not I, I don't necessarily agree with you about the day and a half thing. Um, okay. I all actually right. think um, that, first of all, every Democrat and uh, though the Democratic Party has its problems, it's important to remember there's still half the country. Right. <laughs> um, and um, every Look, Democrat would be up in arms. Mona, I and, hope I'm wrong. Yeah. I, I hope I'm wrong. No, no, I know you do. I know you do. Um, but um, so I, I do think that every Democrat would be. And I think a lot of independents uh, would be appalled. I mean, certainly when you look at polling, um, you know, Trump is, has very low standing among um, Democrats and almost as low among independents. The only group that he's popular with is Republicans. Um, and, uh, and those independent votes matter for a significant percentage of the, uh, of the Congress, specifically sen- mostly senators more than House members. House members are more likely to have state seats, but not all of them do. And um, so it it actually uh, it actually will be, I think, more than a day and a half story if he if he does fire Mueller um, and uh, and the sense of cover up would be so glaring, so enormous. I mean, people would say, well, if there was a principled reason to fire him, why didn't you do it immediately? Or why did you agree to his being hired in the first place? What's the rationale for firing him now? He must be getting close to something that you're eager to hide. I mean, that will be how it looks. Mona, please don't use any logic. Could you? There's, there's no place. There is no place for logic in today's discourse. Could you please refrain from that? I, I'm so sorry. Uh, okay. Please forgive me. Uh, uh, now, uh, since you, we've mentioned the media, and you know, you're somebody who's been in the media uh, for a very long time, and you've seen a all lot. All right, all right. You don't have to say it's that long. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Fine. You, you've seen a lot of changes in the news media, and and I'm curious. I'm curious. Um, how has the media changed in reacting to you, especially uh, in in light of the Trump era and you being anti-Trump? Like, for instance, how do you get treated differently now by the conservative media than you had for, for a significant period of time before Trump became a major figure in American politics? Well, look, um, you know, one of the things that makes me laugh ruefully is when people who are Trump fans say, you anti-Trump people, you sold out. You know, you just you wanted to go to those Georgetown cocktail parties and now you've sold out. Well, of course, the, the truth is, and I'm not joking, the truth is um, lots of people sold out. But those are the people who became pro-Trump, not the people who remained anti-Trump. The people who remained anti-Trump paid a price. They paid a price in um, lost gigs and uh, lost opportunities career-wise and in um, certainly in blowback from readers and listeners who um, are not happy with me and they make it very very clear and they're you know they're as you say they're there's a hardcore of trump people who are very vocal and um and some of them who used to like me really don't like me now and i'm i'm sad about that but i cannot 
you know, I, I, just, I, I have to accept that, you know, they're free to disagree and uh, they're entitled to their opinion. And I understand that what I'm saying is not pleasant to hear. And I understand it so well that I, I tune in. I admit it. I tune in to listen to people I agree with, too. I listen to the John Ziegler podcast because it reaffirms my priors. But uh, so everybody does it. And 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 I understand that. Um, but uh, but it, the only and I say they're perfectly within their rights to not like me, those who don't anymore. But uh, but I would just say don't accuse me of selling out because I've paid a price. Rather Could, than rather than been rewarded. Well, well said. Could you explain a little bit in more detail uh, what the nature of that price has been? Well, you know, it's just it's just opportunities foregone and that sort of thing. So I'm assuming I'm assuming I'm assuming that Fox News Channel doesn't call you very often anymore, right? No, no. <laughs> and, um, and there's a there is a definite market for um, conservative women Trump supporters. Especially if they're, well, never mind. I won't go there. Oh no! Come on. <laughs> Wait a minute. Are are you saying that that if they look like Tommy Laren, is that is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, so, yes, so, so wait a minute. So, so, so you're saying that we've moved in the media from uh, when it comes to female conservatives from people who are substantive and and, and have a long uh, history of of uh, credible commentary from that until until people who are blonde and uh, young and are willing to say anything pro about Trump no matter what the situation is. is that a is that a fair assessment of where we've gone from to to where we are today? You could mistake Fox News for a, for a t- toothpaste commercial. You could. <laughs> <laughs> toothpaste? That, that's actually being pretty nice. I, 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 I'm convinced that eventually uh, Tommy Lahren is going to appear on Fox in a bikini. I, I'm convinced of there that. There you go. Um, well, one time, I have to say, one time uh, Megyn Kelly pretty much did. I, I, it's funny. I was, I was tweeting about it. It was during one of the debates last year, and... Uh, I was tweeting about it, and I noticed that it got picked up by one of the British newspapers, um, one of the big ones. But uh, but she came on the air that night wearing spaghetti straps and what looked like you, know, you could only see her from the waist up, but it sure looked like a bathing suit top. And I and I just commented on it on Twitter. I said, I think Megan Kelly thought she was going to the beach tonight, you know. And uh, well, you anyway. know, that actually is an interesting uh, segue to to another topic that I want to talk to you about, which is which was originally why I asked you on the podcast a couple of weeks ago before we had to cancel uh, due to illness issues. The, and this is this issue that which obviously has been dominating the news lately, which is the the whole issue of sexual harassment, sexual assault. Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a lot of different varieties of the allegations going on. It's hit Hollywood very hard. It's also hit. Uh, politics to a certain degree, uh, Bill O'Reilly, Mark Halperin, uh, and a couple of others. And and, uh, and maybe let's just use Megyn Kelly as the jumping off point here. You know, Megyn Kelly has jumped on this bandwagon, apparently because it's helping her fledgling show on, on the Today Show. And, you know, she, she, is, she has this penchant for saying, oh, by the way, I knew this back when, but I didn't tell anybody, even though I was, you know, on Fox News Channel or on NBC and I had this massive platform. And and somehow, you know, she's a hero for I sent an email to Fox bosses complaining about Bill O'Reilly, but I never told anybody about it. And mm-hmm. uh, and it really I, I'm not allowed to say anything about this because I'm I'll be, you know, all sorts of horrible things. Uh, you right. you at least are a female. Can you give me yep. your, your analysis uh, of uh, someone like Megyn Kelly, 
claiming, you know, not or being portrayed as a hero or heroine for for doing things behind closed doors that she never talked about publicly when they could have actually made a difference? Well, I don't know. I mean, my feelings about her are a little bit more mixed. Uh, on the one hand, I do think she's awfully smart. And when she was being a tough journalist and, and um, so forth on Fox TV, I didn't watch her very often. But when I did, I always thought, she's really smart. She's not just gorgeous, you know? Oh, <laughs> I agree. I like her. Um, I like Megyn Kelly. Yeah. But, that's why, but I'm holding her to a higher standard because I thought she was above this stuff. And well, yeah, I mean, so maybe you're, you may have a point about her seeming to conveniently, you know, issue these statements when, when it's good for her. Like, apparently she hid, she held back certain things because she wanted to put them in her book and improve book sales. I don't know. That, that was the allegation. And, and maybe you're right about this, too. Maybe she, um, you know, is sort of, you know, now when it's safe, she's, she's coming out and saying, oh, well, I did X, Y, Z. I don't really know. But what I will say about the whole situation in general is that it's really important to make distinctions, important distinctions, and this is something that doesn't get done a lot when we talk about sexual harassment and especially the term sexual assault. Now, sexual assault, when most people hear that term, they think of somebody actually being either raped or, you know, close to it, all right, that, that there's physical contact and that it's, uh, the woman is, is vulnerable and endangered and possibly somehow violated in some serious way. That's a sexual assault. Um, and um, so the thing that prompted me to write about this was this, this gal named Lynn, I don't know her first name, she's an actress who uh, opposed with uh, George H.W. Bush a few years ago, so that was taken you know, with a whole bunch of other people, including Mrs. Bush, who was standing right next to H.W.'s wheelchair, wheelchair, mind you, the guy was 90, 89 or 90 at the time this thing happened. And Lind comes out with a statement saying, you know, a few years ago, I was sexually assaulted by George H.W. Bush. Now, what did this sexual assault, and bear in mind, that's a serious term, what did it uh, consist of? Well, she was standing in front of Bush, in front of Bush's uh, wheelchair, and he apparently made a dirty joke and patted her on the tush. Now, that's not good behavior. H.W. Mm -hmm. should not have done that. Um, and he did a, issue with a, his office issued an apology and so forth. Um, and she says he did it twice. But, but okay, so, so he shouldn't have done that. But, first of all, the man is very old. He has a form of Parkinson's disease, which can cause mental decline. Actually, you don't even need Parkinson's disease to be, have mental decline when you're that old. Everybody does. Right. And your judgment gets a little shaky. And, um, and besides, a pat on the tush, however unwelcome, is not a sexual assault. It's, it's you know, gross behavior. It's whatever. I mean, it's, it's not right. But it is not a sexual assault. And for her to present herself as a victim, I mean, for heaven's sake, I mean, where's, first of all, where's her sense of humor? Second, um, that's nothing like a sexual assault. Now, I contrasted what she experienced. And by the way, she was so melodramatic. She, she talked mm -hmm. about how she was helped by her fellow actors and producers and so forth on the set that day. She told them all this terrible tale <laughs> of sexual assault. And they all helped her get through it, you know, okay? And, oh. and, I know. And so uh, contrast that with the other story that was, that was breaking that week. I mean, there's, there's one every few days now, so it's hard to keep up. 
But uh, but this one concerned Mark Halperin of the uh, uh, NBC, who apparently had this charming habit of uh, coming up behind women, or first of all, grabbing them and trying, you know, and kissing them, and or standing behind them in a business meeting and pressing his erect penis against their bodies, um, mm-hmm. you know, from behind. Mm-hmm. Now, it threw his clothes, mind you, but still, that is a whole different thing, okay? And besides, he was doing it to people not who he was meeting for one time for a photo shoot in a public right. place. Right. He was meeting with people who reported to him, right. who, who he could, whose careers he had influence over, who were much younger, less powerful, et cetera, et cetera, behind closed doors. So... That's a whole different thing. And I was thinking, you know, how must the women that Lynn, what George H.W. Bush did, was uh, anything other than the, the, the folly of an old man, whereas, whereas what Halperin did was very, you know, serious. Well, thank you so very much for writing your column about this, because it was really bugging me on, on and there's really two fronts as I see it. There, there's the front that you've already alluded to, which is we've now, mainly because of political correctness, we, we've now changed the definition of all words, right? Any, yeah. Anything that even comes in the realm of sexual harassment, now people can can be referred to as assault, as this woman did. And of course, when you know, as soon as you get to the word assault, then people are thinking rape, as you've already alluded to. I mean, and frankly, and this is not directly related to George Herbert Walker Bush, but to me, even the, the word has been bastardized uh, for as a political weapon, because I've seen it in many situations where, wait a minute, that's not what people would think of as rape. But as soon as people uh, use that word, people's heads explode. It's understandable. Yeah. They, they, they it's, it's a horrible thing. And so they get emotional and then rationality goes out the window and then start you start to get situations where people, um, you know, sometimes innocent people are, are accused of things that didn't really happen or aren't what you think they were. But so that's the first element, which I was really glad that you had the guts because very few other people did to, to mention. And then there's the separate issue of where was the conservative defense of George Herbert Walker Bush, a man who gave his life to this country, who was president of the United States, who has lived this amazing, incredible life. And nobody is coming to his aid uh, when he's being lumped in with Harvey frickin Weinstein and 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 um, and and you were one of the very few strong voices that I saw defending him. And, and my reaction was, and I'm curious if you agree, is that this is part of the price we pay for our movement being taken over by Trump, because now even people in our movement won't defend our, our prior leaders because it's seen as somehow like a subliminal betrayal of Trump because they're the old establishment and and now it's not even like they're part of the same family anymore. Do you see what I'm saying there? I do. I mean, it's it's funny because I, I I'm not really laughing, but it 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 strikes me as just ironic to for me personally just to remember that I was offered a job as uh, George H. W. Bush's speechwriter when he was gearing up to run for the presidency in 1988 when, um, when Reagan you know, was, was retiring and so forth. And I didn't want to work for H.W. Bush because he wasn't conservative enough for me. <laughs> I didn't think he was. And so I, you know, I said no, and I went to work for Jack Kemp, who I thought was better. Yeah. But in any case, um, it's funny that you know, the, the ground has shifted so much, and now um, you know, uh, 
if you if you uh, mention the Bushes, they're seen as the evil establishment uh, of the Republican Party. And uh, look, I mean, everybody everybody has their flaws. Um, everyone has mm-hmm. um, shortcomings. I'm not saying the Bushes were perfect. As I said, I didn't even support H.W. at first. And, I, you know, but but um, but this tendency to um, to think in cartoonish characters about mm-hmm. people and it really has no content other than an emotional content somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't really begin to talk about policy and well, what do you mean when you say the, the establishment is bad? What, what concrete policies are you saying they're for that you're not for? And I guess you could sort of say on immigration there is some content to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to think of any other issue where Trump, for example, the, the new champion of populism, has not been on both sides of every question. And by the way, even on immigration, the way he's governing, uh, you know, is is not very much different than in the way anybody else would. I mean, he's right. He, and, right. Exactly. And he, before 2016, um, he was on record as being, uh, you know, very pro-immigration and right. telling Romney that he lost because he failed because he was too tough on immigration and failed to appeal to Hispanics. He wrote a column for CNN that that was that was incredibly pro uh, immigration and very globalist in its view. Uh, I mean, and yet no one ever mentioned that during the primary. And this was, I think, he wrote it in 2014 or something. It was very, fairly recent. I mean, it's just amazing yeah. what he was yeah. able to get away with. All right, so so Mona, um, last question for for you. You know, where do you see? this going and how does it end uh for conservatism is is this the end is it dead is it over i mean just give us a sense of where you think we're headed here with regard to this era of trump well um uh, i will quote a friend of mine who um also you know been around the conservative movement his whole life and he said that he doesn't think trump can destroy the united states of america it's too stable and he doesn't think that Trump can even destroy the Republican Party. Same reason. But he does think he can and probably already has destroyed the conservative movement as the dominant movement within the Republican Party. Um, and partly that's because conservatives chose to commit suicide and to, to um, you know, forsake everything that they had ever stood for for the sake of winning. And um, so they didn't really – it sort of has – the conservative movement has has petered out because of the lack of integrity of conservatives themselves. Now, it is a power. I I believe that ideas rule the world. That there's nothing more important than ideas. And I think the conservative ideas are true, as Margaret Thatcher used to say. Reality is conservative, and so I don't have, you know, I, I still have hope that that these um, these principles and these and these truths will reassert themselves in time, but it's definitely there is no question that we're in a trough, and that uh, we're going to have a hard time digging ourselves out. I, I'm uh, sorry to say I agree with you. Uh, if in fact I might even be more pessimistic than you, because um, I, I, I think I think that um, we're going to end up suffering greatly in the not too distant future. I think it's five, ten years from now. I think we're going to see complete total democratic socialist control of this country and when they get control they're not going to screw around 
like we've seen yeah. this year. They're going to institute socialism, which cannot be reversed. And um, and that and and you know you know what's really bu- bugs me as much as that happening, which will be horrible for this country. I guarantee you, Mona, that Trump still won't get blamed for that. Then, even if that happens, he won't get no. the blame. It will be blamed. It will be his people, his his cult, his followers will blame it on something else. Probably, ironically, on establishment Republicans. Uh, as insane as no that is, no question. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Right, well, that is. Well, Mona, Mona, thank you so much for your time and your patience. You've been an awesome guest, and uh, let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you, John. All right. Pleasure. Take take care. That's uh, Mona Charon, who is an author, columnist, commentator, and, as I said, a speechwriter from uh, the Reagan era, which uh, seems like so very, very long ago. Not in years, necessarily, but uh, definitely in... Uh, in terms of uh, social change and uh, the way that the landscape of the conservative movement has completely and totally uh, been altered and I believe almost entirely not for the good. All right, uh, that's our number two of this week's The World According to Zig podcast. We have a special hour number three that I'm doing this week uh, dedicated to uh, remarkable revelations in my never-ending quest for justice in the so-called uh, Penn State uh, scandal, the whole Jerry Sandusky story. In the last couple of weeks, I went back to Pennsylvania, and there's some stuff that if you even remotely care about this story or justice, you will not want to miss. So make sure you check out hour number three. And as always, I only ask two things of you. If you're one of those uh, people, well, the first thing is you got to share this podcast because this is the only way the truth's going to get out. Uh, So do so via social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter, what have you. That's number one. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and listen to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.